Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is Season 1, Episode 1. Season 1 of Aggravating Circumstances tells the story of a musician, studio producer, combat medic, and father. It's a tale of hidden evidence, unintended consequences, and a wrongful conviction. This story is deep and complex, and I hope you enjoyed this ride. This podcast is intended for adult audiences, so please use caution. When this story begins in February of 2000, everything was about the music. seen them go i seen them on the front and on the back row i seen them up and i've seen them down i seen them leave and come back around i seen them on one accord seen them collide i see them increase and i see them divide i see them hurt and i seen them heal i seen them fake and i seen them real calls will be recorded and may be monitored you may start the conversation now Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> I have a very good friend serving a life sentence. We've been friends for decades. We were friends before he went to prison. He was arrested shortly after his 17th birthday. Teenagers make incredibly poor life choices. And for the purpose of this podcast, we're going to call him Kevin. Not his real name, Kevin. But Kevin has become a mature, compassionate, remarkable individual. He uses his influence for good, and he uses caring to make a change in a place where those qualities are pretty darn rare. Kevin and I have kept in touch for decades, and he has met thousands of people in prison. And I have to say that he is such an astonishing person and has earned the trust and respect of everyone he interacts with. And I'm just going to say that if I was serving a life sentence, I would not be a do-gooder. I would be in trouble all the time. So how Kevin has managed to stay out of trouble all of this time, to me, is just astonishing because I can tell you that I couldn't accomplish that. So not all that long ago, I was talking to Kevin. He's truly around the worst of the worst. He is in a maximum security prison with people serving life sentences and very long sentences. He jokes on a regular basis that a triple murderer is sweating him for the phone. And he's not kidding. Now, one thing I want to say before I tell you this part of the story is... It is not true that everyone in prison says they're innocent. That's something you see in the movies. It's absolutely not true. And I know people in prison, and and they say that that's not true and that lots of people admit that they are guilty. And the point of that is that not everyone in prison says they're innocent. It's a myth. And so I was speaking with Kevin, and I said, Hey, have you met anyone who's innocent? 
Someone who shouldn't be here. Do you know anyone who's actually innocent? And he thought for about two seconds. So this was very quick response. And he said, I know one. I know one person who shouldn't be here. And to me, it was fairly remarkable because I'm not sure what I expected him to say, knowing that there are lots of people in prison that shouldn't be there. But for him to say, I know this one and he shouldn't be here. The next thing he said was that he and several other inmates, should they one day be released, that one of the things that they all wanted to do is they want to help this person because he shouldn't be there and they all believe that he's innocent. So we have a group of convicted felons who have spent decades in prison who know one person that they believe shouldn't be there and they want to help him. And that's how I learned the story of Destry Cord McKinney. Kevin gave me a brief introduction to what happened to Destry, and he explained that he had shot someone in self-defense who was running him over in his own driveway with a car. And I immediately thought, well, that sounds crazy because we have lots of justifications and legal remedies for justified shootings. For example, if you're a police officer and you shoot someone who is harming others, then you're typically a hero. If you're in the military and you kill a terrorist who's setting a building on fire, they'll probably give you a medal. If you're a school guard and you stop a school shooting, they'll probably give you the key to the city. If someone is breaking into your house in the middle of the night, that's usually self-defense. There are a lot of legal reasons to be innocent, even in a shooting. As Kevin was telling me about this case and that it was self-defense and Destry was being run over by a car in his own driveway when he fired in self-defense, I immediately thought of someone that I know personally who was involved in something similar. Back in 2001, full disclosure, we all worked together at the time. We were owners of a business. I worked for a company and owned a company that was also owned by Dr. Lewis McCurdy Jr. His daughter was out of town, and a 21-year-old man named Jonathan Malmay apparently broke into her house while she was gone. Dr. McCurdy saw him coming out the front door of her house. He either was blocking his way or in his way when Jonathan got in his car and went to leave, and Dr. McCurdy fired into the car, killing him. It was ruled self-defense. There was no question. He was not arrested. There were no charges. And no one thought for a second that Jonathan Malmay was murdered. And Dr. McCurdy shot him while he was leaving in his car from his daughter's house. And he was not charged with a crime. Not only was Dr. McCurdy not charged, there were quite a few articles on what I will call gun rights websites heralding him as a hero for killing a 21-year-old thief. Destry McKinney, on the other hand, was involved in a self-defense shooting on his own property in his own driveway the year before in 2000. Unlike Dr. McCurdy, he is serving a life without parole sentence. 
In February of the year 2000, Destry McKinney was living in Sylacauga, Alabama. He had previously been in the military. He had been a combat medic in the Army for three years. He was honorably discharged. After he left the Army, he decided to pursue his passion of music. He opened a music studio, and in the year 2000, he was part of some groups. He was producing some groups, and things were really starting to ramp up with his music business. He was also a single father with three children living with him that he was taking care of. He said he had gotten into quite the routine with taking them to school, putting them on the school bus, making lunches, taking care of the kids, and he was really maturing as a father and a business owner. On the morning of February 7th, 2000, he had left the music studio and gone to a meeting with someone to talk about distribution of their albums. Remember, this is 2000. iTunes didn't even exist until 2001. So back then, if you wanted to sell your music, you produced CDs and you made CD covers and he had had a meeting about production of the albums and the CDs and distribution of the music. While he was at this meeting, he got a call from a friend of his. Her name was Stevlin Seals. This was someone that he had been friends with. He'd also dated in the past. Stevlin had been evicted from her apartment sometime in the recent past and had asked to store a bunk bed at his studio. This morning in February, she called and said, I'm coming to get my bed. And initially he said, no, I have a meeting. I can't help you get the bed because I have this meeting. He then received a phone call from her that he recognized the number was coming from his family's house, which was right next to his studio. And once again, he said, no, I can't be there because I have this meeting. But then he realized that she was already there because the phone number was coming from his own property. And so he decided he better leave this meeting and go help her with the bed. So he gets there and she's in a small car and the bed was not going to fit in this car. And he said, well, the bed's not going to fit in the car. How do you want to handle this? And she said, I'm going to go get a friend to get a truck and we'll come back and get the bed. In an effort to expedite this process, he decided that he would carry the bed down to the edge of the driveway so that when they pulled up with the truck, they could just load the bed and go because he had told his friend at the meeting he would be right back and his whole goal was to get back to the meeting. She returns with the friend in the truck and when she sees that he has moved the bed away from the house and down by the road, she starts a fight and she calls him some very choice words and some names and there was lots of cursing and yelling involved and this big fight starts and she says why is my stuff on the side of the road and you know he told me that he thought he was doing her a favor trying to help things so that they could quickly load the bed well at some point during this altercation while he's carrying pieces of the bed and her friend is loading the bed in the truck she decides to try to run him over with the car. So she starts driving the car at him, and he was able the first couple of times to jump out of the way. At one point, she drives the car at him, and he has a piece of the bed. In order to duck out of the way, winds up tossing the railing of the bed towards the car and jumps out of the way. Well, the railing of the bed skids off the hood of the car, scratching it, and now she's even madder. So now she's yelling at him that he scratched her car. So the thing to know... While all this is going on is about this time he decides that this has to stop and he's going to call the police. The problem with that is that Stevelin 
was out on bond for an attempted murder charge. We will get into all of that later. There will be lots of details. I know you're going to have lots of questions. I promise all of your questions will be answered eventually. Well, threatening to call the police would be a big deal because if she had attacked someone or had a weapon, then she would be violating her bond and would go back to jail. So he tells her that he's calling the police and she has to leave. So this altercation only escalates and she drives at him several times. At one point, he jumps into a ditch and he gets hurt. So his leg is injured. He's bleeding into his pants. He finally decides that he's had it and he says, you have to leave. Get out of here. I'm calling the police. Don't come back. I'm going to put the rest of the bed frame on the other side of the road so that you cannot come back on my property and you can pick it up there. So she leaves. She drives out and leaves and he doesn't see her car and it's gone. And he has the last piece of the bed, which he walks down and he places on the other side of the road and he's walking back up his driveway and he's holding his phone and he is armed and he has the pistol in one hand and the phone in the other and he's calling the police when he hears gravel crunching and he turns and sees just the last minute that she is running him over again. And this time, he can't get out of the way, and so he shoots. He fires one shot. He's hit by the car. He falls down in the driveway. He gets up, and he says, You hit me. What are you doing? You're crazy. And she says, I'm shot. Remember, this guy was a combat medic. So he runs around and starts applying first aid, and he says, Scoot over. I'm going to take you to the hospital. So he jumps in her car, and he very briefly tries to drive her car, but it's a stick and he can't drive it. So just putting this out there, you never know. Everyone should learn how to drive a stick shift. So he runs up and gets his car. She steps out of the car and steps into his car, and he drives 100 miles an hour to the hospital. There are several witnesses who saw him on the way who said he was driving 100 miles an hour. He drove so fast that he hit a railroad track with his car, which ruptured the gas tank on his car. He arrives at the emergency room in record time. He gets her into the ER. They start working on her. And as he's walking to the front counter to give her information to the nurse who's asking for it, a security guard comes up and says, you have to get that car out of here. It is pouring fuel all over the platform to the emergency room. All the witnesses said it wasn't dripping gas. It was pouring gas. Like this was a major leak. He goes out to move the car. And, you know, I can't even imagine how he was feeling at this point. He has just been run over by a car. He just shot someone in self-defense. He then tried to save her. He just drove 100 miles an hour to get her to the hospital. He's, you know, holding pressure on a gunshot wound while he's driving 100 miles an hour. His car is pouring fuel everywhere. And they say, get that car out of here. So he thinks, okay, there's a gas station just right down the road that I'm familiar with. I'm just going to take it there and see if they can help me with this fuel leak. He pulls up to go to the gas station and he is pulled over meters before he gets to the gas station and arrested. And that was the last time that he was free. And I will tell you my own story about spilling fuel. This was a miserably cold day and I was filling up at a Chevron station and this station had the latches that you can put the pump on and click the latch so that you don't have to hold it. And I realized you're supposed to stand there and supervise, but I didn't. It was really cold. And so I stepped back into my car and closed the door. 
I was probably looking at social media or doing something on my phone, and I realized after a few minutes that I hadn't heard the shutoff noise where the pump shuts off and it turns off automatically. And I open the door and there is a lake, and I am not exaggerating, a lake of gasoline. I have poured gallons and gallons and gallons of gasoline all around this gas station, all underneath my truck. And I completely panic. A good friend of mine had one of her co-workers killed by gasoline fumes. He burned to death. And all I could think of was, I'm going to blow up. This whole place is going to blow up. I'm going to burn to death. And I jump out of the truck and I sink a couple of inches into the gas. It was that bad. I turn the pump off. I put it up. I jump into my truck, back into my truck, and I pull out. And I don't just pull out of the lake of gasoline. I pull out onto the road. Like, all I could think was, I've got to get out of here. So I pull out onto the road, and then I realize, well, that whole place could go up. It could explode. Like, this is really dangerous. And so I make a U-turn, and I go back. I pull into the gas station, and I go into the... There were two ladies behind the counter, and I said, Hey, there's a huge lake of gasoline out there. This is really dangerous. We need to get everyone to stop smoking. This, This whole place could catch fire. And they said, no, 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 that, that's not gasoline. It's, it's, it's just water. And I said, no, I know for a fact that it's gasoline. And they started getting really angry. Who spilled the gasoline? And they started kind of yelling at each other. And I'm, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to tell them that I did it. But they started getting things together to go out and do something about the spill. And they're like, get the kitty litter and get the sign. And so apparently this wasn't the first time it had happened. And they, they went out and they, they took care of it. And when I think about these things, we make decisions every day that can change our lives. What if that gas station had blown up? What if it had caught fire? What if we'd all been killed? What if I had pulled out on the road and everyone else had been killed and I had done it? And so one of the conversations I had with Destry was he said, you know, if only I hadn't left that meeting, if I had just stayed at that meeting, but he didn't. And now he's serving a life without parole sentence. I hope you've enjoyed this first installment of Aggravating Circumstances. There is so much to come. We have lots of information, details, interviews. All of your questions will be answered. It is an incredible, intriguing story. And here is a small preview of what's to come. He said, but don't be afraid. He said, because with the evidence, he said, because Alabama does not have a self-defense law, they're going to give him some time. And it might be five or 10 years. And he said, he said, and um, he said, but that's way better than life. Girls on this side, boys on that side, and three girls, three boys. From my military days, I, I used to sing cadence, and so they loved to be in the car while we're going, and I started cadence, and so we have <laughs> do our little cadence, you know. So we had our little fun. And once they came down with me and was permanent, I'm taking them to school, going shopping, you know, every day, just dad every day, especially with this situation coming right around the corner. in their life for that period of time and then snatched out like that. 
Yeah, I was still 15 when I came back up here. So when this happened, I was 15. And like, that was such a pivotal time in my life because, you know, I was on the football team and stuff. I was doing good on the football team. I had just made the first stream. We just was about to start playing games and stuff. And my coach brought me in the locker room. He showed me the newspaper. It was a newspaper with my dad and he had his handcuffs, the handcuffs, he had the handcuffs held up. And like, just looking at the camera, like I'm in here, that's how he was looking. And the coach put the, put the newspaper on the table and he was like, is this your father? And man, it was, that was the most, one of the most <laughs> uncomfortable things. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's my dad. I would appreciate that it's an answer to prayer for me that, you know, somebody would be interested into, you know, looking into it from this perspective. You know, just getting your letter and learning about what your vision is, just, I'm like, wow. And uh, so we lit the fire in the burn pile, came back down the hill. Stevlin's car is in the front of the driveway. And it was just sitting there, and I, I believe the door was open. I do believe the door was open. And uh, we just looking at each other like, that. that's weird. Nobody ever just parks right there in front of the driveway. Well, since he's been there for 20 years now, if you're not very close or didn't grow, grow up with me as a kid, I rarely tell the full story. I knew what evidence it was. I knew he did not commit a murder. And I just thought there was no way he's gonna be convicted. So I've got my daughter with me and they stay guilty. Life without parole. My daughter screams. She runs out of the courtroom. Me being so young, it was a, a it was a very traumatic experience for me. I really enjoy talking to you. I, I feel like I know you a lot just to read all your court stuff, unfortunately, but I look forward to getting to know you more. I do too. I do too. Well, you sleep well and be safe. This is an ongoing story that I update and add to continuously. So if you have any information or would like to reach out in any way, have anything you would like me to know, please reach out at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thank you for coming along for this ride. And we will be finishing up season one, episode one with music by... Destry McKinney.
I've been afflicted, I've been a misfit, kicking it with the wicked. I've been a letdown, I've been a upstart, I've been rebellious, that fellow with a stone heart. I've been a deviant son of a saint, greedy, disobedient, breaking that bank. And with these ingredients, I move that way. That's where I'm from, that's expedient for getting that rank. Ah, but that ship sank in the the road. The devil is a liar, I should have known. I do, I move now with nowhere to go. Trying to gain a world and not lose my soul. Riding on empty, down for the trip. Stuck in time while eternity slips. In the marvelous light of my nightmare clips. I reach for the gold, but I can't get a grip. Have mercy on my soul. My Lord, my King, my hope. God save me and make me whole. Cause I'm at the end of my rope. Have mercy on my soul. Believe what I see, how could I be blind? So I kept flying through every stop sign and didn't stop till pop with the big time. But I was lost then, still I was lost then. Couldn't know the life and price that I would cost me. True was false, y'all, but I was lost in. Headed for a fatal, toss off the deep end. I tried everything, I mean everything, except for making the price my everything. But now he's everything, I mean everything. I bowed down, pledging my crowd to the mighty king. Look at the evidence that makes it evident. Everything I've done before is now irrelevant. I give him reverence, praise with no hesitance, cause my God is in control of every element. Have mercy on my soul, my Lord, my King, my hope. God save me and make me whole, cause I'm at the end of my rope. Have mercy on my soul, my Lord, my King, my hope. God save me and make me whole. Save me and make me 